When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. President Hosni Mubarak has decided to leave his position as President of the Republic and asked the Supreme Council of the Armed Forces to run the country. May God be our helper. That was the Vice President of Egypt back in 2011, announcing that the President, Hosni Mubarak, was stepping down after 30 years in office. It took 18 days of camping out in the middle of downtown Cairo, but demonstrators had managed to bring down one of the most resilient autocrats in the world. It was, at the time, the single biggest victory of the Arab Spring. This moment where, if, like me, you come from Egypt, you really did think something better was on the way. Democracy, stability, something. But this episode isn't about Egypt or revolution. It's about something without which there's a good chance this revolution, and a lot of others like it, wouldn't have happened at all. Something we quite often take for granted because it belongs to all of us. And when it disappears, something shiny, but not nearly as accessible, comes along to take its place. This episode is about public space. What do you think of when you think of public space? For most people, the first thing that comes to mind is a park, a playground, a town square. Or if you're thinking indoors, maybe a library or city hall. There's not much these places all have in common, except that they're supposed to belong to everyone. And you can spend time there without the expectation that you spend money. But public space, both the concept and, well, the physical space itself, is a deeply political thing. It's where we go to protest, to voice our displeasure, and that can make it terrifying to the people we voice our displeasure about. In this episode, we'll take a look at how public space can often transcend its initial purpose, growing into something the people who built it might never have intended at all. We'll visit places where pieces of urban design became springboards for social movements. And we'll see the ways in which those in power have responded by trying to neutralize those spaces. For example, Egypt, where a new administration, terrified of what public space can be used for, has resorted to building an entirely new city out in the desert, specifically designed to minimize and surveil the places where people of different social and economic stripes can gather. It's a preview of sorts, of what the world looks like once you start getting rid of public space. By the way, before we get any further into this episode, you should know that the reason you're hearing birds chirping behind me is because we decided to do a portion of this episode outside. So right now I'm in the forest, not far from my house, uh, just south of Portland, Oregon. And this is what a lot of public space is like in this part of the country. It's pretty. It's that unicorn week in sort of late April, early May, when it stops being gray and drizzly all the time but we haven't hit forest fire season yet, 
and it's not 110 degrees, it's just perfect. And this is what public space sounds like. I'm Omar Lakad, and this is Without. We'll get back to Egypt in a minute, but let's start on the other side of the planet, Northern California, and a piece of public space that has been at the center of some of the most important social movements that part of the country has ever seen. I live in the East Bay. I've always lived on either side of Berkeley, so um, it's, and it's actually my hometown. That's Allison Moore. She's an archivist and research librarian at the California Historical Society in San Francisco. Allison has written extensively about the history of the Bay Area. One of her research subjects is an architect named Lawrence Helprin, who designed several sites here, including a place called Sprout Plaza on the Berkeley campus. Sprout Plaza was one of his early sites, and it's not as well known, um, and it's not as classically Halprin. A lot of Halprin's work focused on the idea that people shouldn't just have a straight line to walk from point A to point B. He wanted people to become engaged with the surrounding environment. His wife was a dancer, and the idea of movement and fluidity heavily influenced his work. But neither Halperin nor the university foresaw how those ideas would play out in Sprout Plaza. You know, the university had just come through the 1950s. There were protests about various things, including a loyalty oath protest. But people tended to gather in much smaller groups. They tended to gather, you know, near Sather Gate the real entrance to campus. Campus was a much more controlled place. And the early 60s were really a watershed of change. Suddenly you had much bigger, more concentrated demonstrations. And a lot of them were taking place in Sprout Plaza, which wasn't even originally designed as a plaza per se. It was intended to be a passageway from the main campus, not a gathering spot. There were all these student buildings in Lower Sprawl, away from the administrative building, and the folks who built the place just assumed students would gather there instead. The architect actually described it as a buffer zone between all of those student buildings, student-focused buildings, student-community-focused, and Sprawl Hall. So that was quite a surprise because during my whole lifetime, and like I said, I've lived in Berkeley when I was born, I was pretty young for those protests, but it's been the site of so many protests over the years, all the way up to Black Lives Matter, everything in between, anti-war. I attended divestment rallies there in the 80s. I was working on campus. And, you know, it was just a big surprise to find out it wasn't planned for that reason. But when you think of it, um, the regents never invited those protests. They just inadvertently created the perfect setting. In 1966, the college tried to alter the design so that Sprawl wasn't as central of a location. They built a different entrance to campus, but that didn't do much to change why the students were gathering there in the first place, which was to protest the administration, whose offices were right there. And then subsequently, it's just 
by the way, the university moved all of those offices out. They moved the the chancellor and and you know the the the, the whole administration first to another building on campus, and then I believe to downtown Oakland. It's almost the exact same strategy that today the Egyptian government is also trying: move the administration somewhere else, a place that's harder to get to, harder to gather in. But at Berkeley. The tactic hasn't quite worked, at least not in neutralizing sprawl as a hotbed for protest. During the height of the Black Lives Matter demonstrations, this is still where folks came. All these decades later, it still serves the same, largely unforeseen purpose. So it remains a site for protest, and I don't think it would go over well if it was obvious they were trying to alter that space. But across the planet, from Berkeley to Cairo, that's exactly what's happening. Places whose centrality, ease of accessibility, and communal nature make them potentially subversive are being either eradicated, redesigned, or replaced. And it's not just large gathering places. In all kinds of communities, the fight to build and maintain public space is increasingly a political battle, a battle over very differing views of how a community should function. When we come back, we talk to someone who's been fighting that battle. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Politics has never been stranger or more online, which is why the politics team at Wired is making a new show, Wired Politics Lab. It's all about how to navigate the endless stream of news and information and what to look out for. Each week on the show, we'll dig into far-right platforms, AI chatbots, influencer campaigns, and so much more. Wired Politics Lab launches Thursday, April 11th. Follow the show wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Michael Johnson. I am a co-founder of South Bronx Unite, and I'm a community activist. Michael left his hometown of Chicago just over 20 years ago. He was looking for a community where he could put down roots and a good school for his young daughter. He found those things in the South Bronx a community that felt something like I was used to where I grew up at, which was in Chicago, it was a community of color. It wasn't long after he got to New York that Michael became deeply involved in the community there. One of the things that spurred his activism was that everywhere he looked, he found similar problems to the ones his grandmother faced when she moved to Chicago more than half a century earlier. My grandmother migrated there in 45 from the South to this very neighborhood in Chicago, which then ended up being a gentrified neighborhood, this, then displacement started happening, right? Was, or, or another flight happened where people couldn't afford to live there. So I started seeing that same thing play out here in the South Bronx. Um, I had seen writing on the wall before. I knew what it looked like. And I could see it was setting itself up in 2004 when I first joined the board. And I saw alarms going off, like, this can't happen. I know it's how it's going to play out. What can I do to be a part of? making sure people can be have healthier outcomes and be able to stay where they want to live. If this all sounds too abstract, here's a specific example of what Michael's talking about. 
there's this company called Fresh Direct. It's one of those services that delivers food to people's doorsteps. But their target market isn't really the South Bronx. A lot of folks there can't really afford that kind of service. Nonetheless, they were coming to Michael's neighborhood, or at least their warehouse was anyway. But they were going to bring their thousand diesel truck tips to our community based off a plan that the governor and the mayor at that time thought was a great idea because they're going to create jobs. But as Michael soon found out, the plan was predicated on an environmental impact statement that was more than 20 years old. One that took no issue with sending a thousand diesel truck trips a day into his neighborhood, where asthma rates were already high. This is insane, right? And they want to do it on Native American burial ground instead of a public land that was leased to one developer by a friend of a governor for 99 years, this public land. It's like abuse on top of it. It's like an assault on top of an assault on top of an assault. This is how it looks a lot of the time when you're trying to fend off the corporatization of space. It's endless lawsuits, political hurdles, setback after setback. It's long, thankless work, and most of the time, the little guy doesn't win. But Michael keeps at it, in part because it's a reminder of what a community is actually supposed to do. Even something as simple as a community garden, it's a big deal. It's a reminder that the people who live here get to have a say in the urban geography of the place. They get to plant vegetables instead of watching trucks go by. I've learned a lot since being here in this new neighborhood and just watching how people came together to create these community gardens. The attributes and the feelings and the stewardship of the local community, where they're developing that space themselves, or with the assistance of foundations who help provide funding, of course, but not the way we build public parks in the city, where it's built so it's less maintenance. So they do a little tree, it's surrounded by asphalt. They'll put another one over there, but it's mostly, you know, impermeable surfaces that don't help us in our heat island fight. This kind of work Michael's involved in, it's a pretty good way to learn the difference between what public space looks like when it's built and maintained by proxy and when it's done by the people who actually meet and play there. So what does this fight look like when you're on the other side of making decisions about public space? To find out, we talked to an urban planner in Houston who's working on one of the largest pieces of park development in the country. I'm the first generation of, of my household to graduate from high school and achieve what I've achieved so far academically speaking. Juan Antonio Sorto served as the community engagement manager at the Buffalo Bio Partnership. That's the nonprofit charged with redeveloping a 10 square mile stretch of land in and around Houston, including a 160 acre green space just west of the city's downtown core. Not that long ago, it wouldn't have been all that unusual for planners to give very little thought to how a public space development like this might impact less privileged neighborhoods. Communities of color, immigrants, poorer zip codes. But one is part of a new generation of planners and designers who are trying to change that. And one of the reasons he's able to is because he's from one of those neighborhoods. And also, I grew up in a community where we did not have access to these park systems that, like, for example, my organization currently operates. And so we had to travel outside of our jurisdiction to at least go enjoy some of these parks. Now, I should clarify that we did have access to these parks. It's just that for some reason, we, my mother or, or my family didn't feel safe to, to use these parks. 
At the Buffalo Bio Partnership, Juan is essentially trying to expand who gets a say in what a park should look like. Their mission for the last 30 years or so have been more about programming because the hike and bike trail system that we currently operate is in the heart of downtown. So there's really no community engagement involved. And so about five years ago, they uh, decided that they were going to expand the trail system so they could bring in communities, surrounding communities, uh, to partake in these trail systems. A lot of this work depends on collecting data. How do people actually utilize public space? And how does that change when the folks using it aren't the ones designers had in mind when they built it? That's not just a matter of square footage. It's also about money. So that means that a lot of these park systems are currently being funded by the private market. There are a lot of good, generous, wealthy philanthropists out there. I'll give you an example. Buffalo Bayou, for example, in September received a $100 million donation from a billionaire, which is the largest donation that a a park system has ever received in the United States. But money doesn't necessarily buy community support. If the people who live near the space the people who are supposed to be the ones using it, don't feel like it reflects their needs. It doesn't really matter how well the space is funded. So if they're not buying into your concept design, then, you know, are you really resolving the problem for a community in the lack of green space? After the break, we look at another form of public space. One that for a new generation can sometimes be the most vital gathering place they have even if very little of it is actually public. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared in Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. How does AI even work? Where does creativity come from? What's the secret to living longer? TED Radio Hour explores the biggest questions with some of the world's greatest thinkers. They will surprise, challenge, and even change you. Listen to NPR's TED Radio Hour wherever you get your podcasts. The internet started as this wide open space where anybody could build a website and start a blog and, you know, have a voice and, you know, be just put their stuff out there, right? And, and kind of stake their claim. That's Taylor Lorenz, technology columnist for The Washington Post. She spends a lot of her time writing about, and using, the 21st century's fastest-growing form of public space. Or sort of public space. The online one. And then you saw these social media platforms come in, and those are truly private spaces, right? So those are almost like walled-off gardens or, um, you know, private buildings, right, that you can only enter if you're a user, and then you have to sacrifice a lot of your data privacy. We tend to use social media like a public space. But as Taylor notes, there's really nothing public about how social media is governed. It's the leadership. It's the CEOs. It's the big names that we're all used to hearing. You know, the Mark Zuckerbergs, the Elon Musks. Um, Those are the people that really determine everything on the platform from, you know, who gets popular and who has a voice on the platform to who doesn't. Um, 
and they really dictate the environment that users live in every day. And the central driver behind those decisions, the ones that determine a lot of what you see on your social media feed, is fairly straightforward. What's going to get the most clicks? Sometimes that means giving a bigger spotlight to whatever is most likely to go viral that day, be it a celebrity feud or some review of a Marvel movie that's gotten fans upset. But sometimes it can be a lot darker. A lot of people have been confronted with videos of gore, beheading videos, animal cruelty on Instagram Reels. The reason why that's happening is because Instagram was rewarding views on Reels above all else. And what gets the most amount of views? Violence and graphic content. So, um, you know, you see so many examples of like the, this play out every day where these algorithms that social media platforms leverage in different ways, reward different types of content and different types of people. One of the reasons these problems are fairly hard to fix is that corporate digital spaces by design are intended to get as big as possible as quickly as possible, which is a problem that, generally speaking, physical public spaces don't really have. For better or worse, the more users a social media company has, the more valuable it's considered by investors. And that has resulted in a pretty big gap between the biggest online spaces and everywhere else. So if you leave Twitter, where do you go? Sure, there might be another site that takes things like inclusivity and abuse prevention seriously, but chances are it has a tiny fraction of Twitter's user base. I think a lot of these problems are structural problems with the type of capitalism that we have in this country. It's, you know, these are problems that are bigger than just tech, you know, especially in terms of representation and management and leaders at these companies that that believe in certain values like free free expression and equal rights for trans people or women or people of color you know those are those are values type questions you could put someone in the government that shares the same values as a tech ceo and that wouldn't make it better you know In a way, this is one of those things that digital and physical public spaces have in common. When they're working, they allow people from all walks of life to simply get together. At its core, the internet is a people connector, and that's what these social media platforms are built to do, is connect people at scale to exchange ideas and information. But if people don't know how to use the space, or worse yet, don't know about the ways it can be misused, then a lot of that exchange either doesn't happen or happens badly. We need to educate people and we need to give people a level of media literacy so that they understand what's happening. They understand these tech platforms and how they're manipulating people and and affecting people and, and how they affect our freedoms. None of these platforms will be around forever. Eventually they're going to be replaced and... We need, to, we need to hopefully replace them with more thoughtful products that are developed by more diverse people. That's a tall order for a number of reasons. Scale, money, the general lack of diversity in so many corners of the tech world. But there's also something else, something that stands in the way of more thoughtful public space, both virtually and in the real world. And that is an intentional effort, not just to minimize public space, but to build the exact opposite of it. Let's go back to Egypt. If you've ever visited the place, you know that a city like Cairo 
population 20 million, is in almost every way chaotic. A lot of it unplanned, organic. But a few years back, a new administration, essentially indistinguishable from the military, learned that public spaces such as Tahrir Square can be a dangerous site for the exchange of ideas. Dangerous enough to bring down governments. And so one of the first orders of business wasn't just to make the square itself much less accessible. It was to do something that very rarely happens here. Build an entirely new city from scratch, predicated on the obliteration of public space. Welcome to the soon-to-be administrative capital of Egypt, a city out in the desert called New Cairo. If you look at the scale of the city also, like it has all these really wide streets and really huge spaces, but they're also spaces I think where like you could control the flow of access to. Um, you know, the new capital is going to be under total video surveillance. They've already said that. Like, it's going to be secure in that way, technological in that way. This is Ursula Lindsay, a journalist who lived in Egypt for 12 years and was there during the Arab Spring. Ursula has written about this new city, which she calls the anti-Cairo. There's been private residential gated big sort of suburbs being built around Cairo for the last at least 20 years, which were designed to buffer upper class people from the, you know, all the inconveniences and sort of imaginary threats of the city. So it's, I think, you know, it follows that sort of like gated community approach, even though it's a very big city. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think in all those ways, like it's 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 designed that the authorities have a real kind of obsessive concern with the repeat of the Arab Spring, like uh, which is manifested in like really heavy policing of Tahrir Square and other places in central Cairo, um, like really heavy campaigns around the anniversary of the revolution and stuff where they stop people in the street and they check their phones and they, you know, in case anybody's planning to like protest or anything. There's clearly like a really major preoccupation of theirs. There's also a very real rationale to the way the place is designed. There is a government neighborhood being built that has all the ministries leading in a kind of esplanade towards the building that dwarfs them all, which is the presidential palace. So there's a hierarchy there that's very explicit. And somewhere in there, there's a big open plaza. But in the original plans, like completely open, sun-baked, paved. It's more of a space that I think is meant to be like ordered and surveilled effectively. The residential components of it are not going to be particularly affordable. I mean, they're going to be beyond the reach of most Egyptians. So then you also cut out the possibility that like lower class people can converge there, right? It's like you only have who are who are, you know, generally considered to be, I think, the the engine of the kind of disorder that they want to avoid. And this ultimately is perhaps the most significant thing we lose when we eradicate public space. The potential for people of all walks of life to meet on even ground. It's disintegrating on social media where the pressures of profit are leading to the institution of tiers and memberships and all kinds of pay for reach business models. 
and is disintegrating in real life, where such gathering places pose a real risk to the status quo. It's not just about a place to walk the dog or have a picnic. Public space is political, and its absence even more so. Without is a production of Hyperobject Industries and Sony Music Entertainment. It's written and hosted by me, Omar Alakad. It's executive produced by Claire Slaughter and Harry Nelson. Our senior producer is Emil Klein. Our producer is Lashik Lotus Lee. And our associate producer is Fendel Fulton. With additional reporting from Jordan Allen and production support from Zaley Mahone. Our theme music, sound design, and mixing is by Joanna Catcher at Nice Manners. And our research is by Sarah Mathis and Zoe Gruskin. And a special thank you to Michael Mahaffey for taking the time to tour and talk about public spaces with me in Portland, Oregon. Thanks for listening. We'll be back with more next week.